Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 206. My name is Cameron English. I am your host, as always, almost as always. I was on vacation last week, so Kevin <laughs> Kevin steered the ship all on his own. He did a terrific job, and we had a great guest host as well, Kevin. So thank you to both of you for holding it down. I really enjoyed the episode, but I'm also glad to be back. I missed your face. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, it's nice that you're back too. And it's a rainy day at Fulta Lago. And uh, if uh, if I uh, hope you can uh, deal with the sound of animals and rain in the background here, but I still got a house full of folks here and uh, I don't really have my office anymore. So we'll return to the normal office as soon as I can get some of them back to Ukraine. So working on it. <laughs> I love that you call it Fulta Lago. I think that's just the perfect name for it. I also think that the animal sounds really enhance the show. So okay, it just adds something. Yeah. yeah, adds a little color color to it. But um, in any case, we've got three stories to talk about as always. Some interesting stuff that we don't normally get to, Kevin. So let's dive into uh, to our topics for the day. So first up, $10,000 for a bottle of perfume made from 8,000 flowers. Synthetic biology makes royal fragrances available at a fraction of that price. Next up, fashionable organic fantasies. Global elite at Davos endorses failed farming policies amid a global food crisis. And finally, do sleeping pills hasten dementia? A new terrible study says maybe we say, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so we'll get into that in a minute, Kevin. But first up, let's talk about synthetic biology. First off, what is that? So people understand. Uh, well, what's synthetic biology or what's the noise in the background? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I think everyone understood the noise, but uh, okay, that's a black that's a black copper Moran. That's a kind of chicken. He's a good dude. He's he's usually pretty crabby. He doesn't like anybody, but he likes me. Okay, I bring him things. All right. So synthetic biology is this idea that we can use biological systems to create uh, products from engineering in pathways or uh, engineering in pathways, essentially being able to create or take uh, pathways from one place, like a plant or a fungus or a human, and then place them into a different context, like bacteria. And maybe the best example of synthetic biology might be the uh, bacteria that were made to create human insulin back in the 1970s. So synthetic biology is an old concept, but only recently branded. And when we think about this now, we're looking at the ways in which synthetic biology has been used to create a plethora of products that are available for human use. And uh, this article is uh, Synthetic Biology Company is Bringing Royal Fragrances to the Masses by John Cumbers in its original form on Forbes. And the idea is, is that perfumes are an extravagance. And mostly because the com compounds within them are rare. And that's what I loved about this particular article. It was discussed that it took uh, over 250,000 individual petals to produce five milliliters of rose oil. So massive amounts of, of front-end stuff to create a little dribble of things that someone could spend a lot of money on. 
Um, probably the best one, <laughs> which came from this article, is this, the cruelty-free musk. Did you see this part? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's it about, though, in case someone right, didn't Well, well cruel, cruelty-free musk sounds like a great idea. And I always say, well, what is cruelty musk? <laughs> and, and, and this is um, a, a scent used in very expensive perfumes that is taken from the, uh, the foreskin of the musk ox. So wow. It's gl- yeah, it's a gland that, or no, from the musk deer. So um, a, a uh, gland that is in the prepuce of the uh, musk deer that's used for uh, high-end perfume. And I don't know if they harvest this thing and then turn the deer back loose. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this is like a bad circumcision thing that they do on deer. I don't know. I don't want to know. The beauty of this is that they were able to figure out what genes are happening inside the uh, penis of a a musk deer and then add those genes to yeast and now have the yeast make the smell of a musk deer penis, and which is fantastic. And now they can bottle it and sell it to people for a lot of money. Now you can go to ne- ne- Neiman Marcus and buy it. This is what just blows me away about this, is how did we get to this? <laughs> you had to imagine that somewhere, somebody. how did they figure out that this stuff smelled good, for one? I was going to ask you, yeah. how did they do that? Did some guy get drunk one day and wander out into the woods? and <laughs> <laughs> A little dab of the musk, musk ox penis behind my ears. And, and <laughs> drives the ladies wild. <laughs> so it was, um, what, what it boils down to is things like this or the um, essences from the gland of the civet, uh, from the anal gland of the civet. These are, <laughs> I'm not kidding here. These have these uh, really offensive odors that are really awful that when complex with other odors are when they're uh, taken up by the olfaction and stimulate the, the, the olfactory system, they're interpreted by the brain to be positive or negative. And somehow priming these uh, collections of odors with these really offensive ones seems to make the bad ones better or the good ones better and the bad ones not as bad. And so it's something weird that happens in the, in the, uh, psychopharmacology of the brain, and I don't understand it. Um, all I know is that um, it, it seems good that we can do this now um, in yeast rather than going out and hunting <laughs> Chanel number two, um, <laughs> pulling things out of the anal glands of of, of rats and, and civets and deer and things. So, anyway, synthetic biology is doing this now. There's a company that's involved in this heavily. Uh, the company is is actually doing very well because of the fact that they can produce these rare compounds. And the compound is Sensogen. Uh, they're a flavor and fragrance company. And they're um, really coming up with new compounds to meet consumer demands. It's really cool stuff. And I, I want to talk more about the, the perfume aspect of it. But more broadly, this has really useful applications. Because I know for like for vanilla and some of the other food ingredients that that people really enjoy, it's it's intensive to to produce those, and and there are some pretty serious environmental consequences in some of those cases. So with this, potentially you can produce the enzyme or whatever whatever you know ingredient you're after without 
you know, planting a bunch of whatever crop you need. Is that right? Can you talk about that a little? No, that's true. Vanilla is remarkably challenging to grow. It's a lily. It grows on the sides of trees. You have to have it pollinated by hand if you're growing it in a controlled environment like a greenhouse. And so coming up with vanilla beans, which have vanillin and a complexity of other compounds that come along with it that you can't really replicate artificially. So the artificial vanilla has the vanillin, but it doesn't come with all the other little goodies that you get out of a bean, which give it a much more rounder flavor. So if you're really a connoisseur of vanilla, um, you can uh, prefer what you get out of a vanilla bean. But they're enormously expensive and difficult to cultivate. And worse, um, maybe I'm on a tangent, but most of them come from Madagascar. Yeah. And uh, Madagascar grows all the vanilla beans, and they're um, uh, frequently having either uh, a pirating or thievery, uh, vanilla plantations where they have these things are frequently broken into. They have high security. Uh, if you have problems, civil unrest, you can disrupt the vanilla pipeline. <laughs> so there's a lot of really nice things about having a pathway to create vanilla and its accessory compounds in fungus or in bacteria. Grow it in a fermenter. And uh, Joe Fiedler, I think her name was, I can't remember her last name. Oh gosh, she was a guest on Talking Biotech who talked how they saw that vanilla had some common precursors with uh, polyethylene bo uh, bottles. So the bottles that we have for drinking water can be recycled into vanilla extract in her lab. So super oh, wow. cool. But that's synthetic biology and it's how they can create new chemistry from our existing chemistry. Uh, by exploiting the pathways that are resident in plants and animals and um, and uh, deer penises. Good times. <laughs> Could you imagine if that's how you started your Tuesday? Someone just bursts in your door and... <laughs> like, <we're... laughs> yeah, you're, get... bedding, you're, you're bedding down in the forest, just <laughs> doing what you do on your deer Monday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some guy says, come here, I need your foreskin. <laughs> no! That's awful. Okay. On a, on a more serious note, we've talked previously about uh, when it comes to gene editing wine grapes, for example, consumers get very, very skittish because they're stuck in their ways. Tradition's very important. They want the grape to be called Merlot or whatever, right? You can't change anything. You got to have the guarantee on the box to quote Tommy Boy, right? It's that kind of a thing. Do you see that happening here with uh, with perfumes or with any of these other ingredients? I haven't heard anything like that yet, but I'm wondering if this becomes more widespread. Could this be a, an issue? Yeah, I think so. I think that's one of these things, though, where we're not necessarily, uh, in general, when we talk about synthetic biology, we're talking about production of compounds that are already in use and being derived from, from perhaps rare sources that have environmental impacts and high cost. And by being able to do it in a fermenter and make vanilla extract or other flavors, um, essential oils, things like that, the other it may be very positive in the long term. The other thing to keep in mind is that when you purify these compounds, you don't just typically purify the one compound of note, that you bring in other compounds as well. And so the lack of purity can sometimes be allergenic. It can have other issues. So in the long haul, being able to produce good, good sensory stimulating compounds inside a fermenter may be a really positive thing. And, and I think ultimately people will get on board and deers can keep their penises. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's really what we're all after here. I think 
you know, maybe Sarah McLaughlin can do a uh, one of those ads. <laughs> Acoustic guitar with the sad deer in the background. <laughs> I'm going to have to record that now. I'll do it for next week. <laughs> All right. All right. Enough of that foolishness. Let's talk about dumb people promoting evil things. Uh, so what's going on at Davos? They're, they seem all all jazzed up about organic agriculture again. Well, this is the big deal, right? And this is that the, uh, it, the well, first we should talk about who wrote this. This was done by Real Clear Markets. It's by Chandra Darna Wardana, who I never met, but he's a, a PhD physicist. And uh, he, and he uh, was originally born in Sri Lanka. So a lot of this hits a little bit close to home for him, perhaps. And I currently works uh, for the National Research Council in uh, Montreal, Canada. And when you look at, uh, it's the old story that when your plow is a pencil, farming is a breeze, right? And the folks who have uh, full bellies and, and lots of things to chomp on are the first to complain about farmers and the way they do what they do. And this article was written um, mostly talking about what was happening in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum. And really talked about how this is a very high-priced, luxury environment, uh, caviar and champagne, flying in on jets with plenty of fossil fuel being burned to be able to go talk about fossil fuels. Um, <laughs> and the buzzwords were in the air. And it was all about how they should try to try to persuade developing nations to adopt organic agriculture practices and things like agroecology and uh, uh, regenerative agriculture, whatever that means now. Those things were all being discussed as remedies to shape the agriculture of these developing nations. And this was really the uh, big, wow, there's a plane flying right over my head. We never have planes out here. I live in the middle of nowhere. There's never a plane. I hope that everything's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, bottom line is, is that there, this was on the, on the lips and on the discussion du jour around the World Economic Forum. And the problem is, is that if you're going to drag people out of poverty, which we're doing a good job of, by the way, with technology, you uh, probably are not going to do it by forcing production systems on them that we know are less productive and most of all take up more land. And so the idea here, and I, I can understand the, the idea that in places where you don't have access to inputs, like maybe you don't have fertilizer, a fossil fuel derived Haber-Bosch fertilizer. Maybe you don't have the latest and greatest seeds at your access. But, you know, trying to do what you can in those situations is perfectly fine. But to really make it an ideological bend that this is what we should be teaching in the developing world really is off base because it isn't going to give them the fastest pipeline to prosperity. You know, I bet if you were to pull aside any of these people who are on this panel and ask them... Uh... Is misinformation a problem today? Every one of them would say, oh, oh, misinformation, it's so bad. It's, you know, it's everywhere. And if you were to say, okay, well, what about social justice? Oh, I love social justice. We got to, you know, we got to promote equity and blah, 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 right? They would have all of the talking points ready. But then when it comes to a very practical issue like this, food production, they just, they embrace all of this nonsense, you know? And I know none of these people are familiar with the research on this because if you look at that, it's unequivocal. Unless you go to, 
the Organic Consumers Association or something like that. Every every reputable scientist I know of says what you just said, which is that yeah, you know, depending on the crop, the the yield the yield reduction is something between thirty and fifty percent. <laughs> you know, and you need more fertilizer and more pesticide and more land, and it's just it's a mess, you know, and I, they specifically mentioned this being a benefit to climate change. I don't know how anybody seriously believes that it, it, it boggles my mind, Kevin, what, what's going on? Do you think? Well, I think the only way you could make that argument is by saying that you're using fossil fuels in the creation of, um, of synthetic fertilizers and they have to be transported. I guess if you make that argument, I could start to think about how you could, you know, if you started counting carbon, maybe you could make that break even. But it's been shown very elegantly that conventional farming is much better with respect to carbon dioxide emissions, especially those liberated from soil. And so it's it's hard. It's it, it's 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 kind of politics all over the place. And that's why we should be really clear. I'm not against organic farming and I love researching organic farming. And I'm glad we support it because the, the things we learn there may help some people adjust to how to farm better in the ways they do it without uh, synthetic inputs, which is great. Whatever, you know, more tools on the table. That's, that's my, that's my take all the time. Um, there was one quotation in this. I just love it says this cocktail of sustainability terms is just an unsustainable peasant farming rebottled. Yeah. And these efforts are, <laughs> are the bastard children of policymakers infected with activist <laughs> misinformation. <laughs> that's so good. I love that because, it's he, I don't know if he, well, you said he's in Canada now. I'm sure he knows people who live in Sri Lanka who have felt the effects of these policies, you know? So I get that this is personal to him. You know, I could feel that he's angry about this and justifiably so. And that's the thing. And I've said this before, like when we talked about eating bugs or when we talk about, you know, eliminating meat or whatever, all the people that are behind these ideas fine, let's go for it. But you have to start it. You have to live by this, right? So if you think regenerative, regenerative ag is so great, grow all your food that way, right? Don't, don't go to the, the, I don't know what the public's down the street, right? Don't go down there and buy your food. You know, you can use all the indigenous knowledge you like, and you can use all of the agroecology you like, but that's the only way you get food. And then let's see how enthusiastic you are about, you know, all of these grand ideas, you know, I think that would dampen their excitement a little bit. Yeah, I got a, a conversation on Twitter last night with somebody who was saying that, you know, modern agriculture is the bane of, uh, of the world's existence and destroying the planet, blah, blah, blah. And she sent me a link to something that she said was like open agriculture or whatever. And it was all, oh, we have this design of how we're going to rethink farming and we're going to employ uh, agroecological uh, regenerative practices and blah, blah, blah. And if you went down to the research or to the uh, team leadership, there was a web designer and a marketer <laughs> and an economic consultant and uh, a professor and blah, you know, all the usual suspects, not one farmer. <laughs> and as somebody who this morning was up at the crack of dawn, you know, grafting plants and, and, and spraying to protect from fire blight, I, I kind of resent that a little bit because as stated before, it's easy to farm when your pencil is a, the plow is a pencil. And so this is really where it's at. And, um, and I, and it was sad to see that, you know, that, that kind of article gaining traction and being influential with some people, but that's, that's where this is. Nobody knows the farther we get away from farming, the easier it is to, to criticize it. And I think it's important for us to really kind of get a handle on that and 
it's a national, international level is special. Yeah, yeah. Tangentially related point, I saw you uh, interacting with Dr. Mark Hyman on Twitter the other day. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Hyman was talking about, you know, food you can find in nature like apples, these are great for you. But food like substances that you find in the store like donuts, these are not good for you. And you chimed in as a, as a plant breeder and a scientist and a farmer. And you're like, you know, <laughs> funny yeah. story, Mark. Let me tell you where those apples come from. Right? <laughs> yeah, you won't find a honey crisp out in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, this is a this is a crazy distillation of uh, thousands of years of domestication and genetic change instilled by humans, not by nature. Absolutely, yeah. Mother Nature, as we've said before, is a giant bitch. You know, <laughs> who, who wants you dead? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cancer, infectious bacteria, earthquakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it's it's modern science and technology. That that saves your life, and we should be grateful for that. I don't. I don't know. These people drive me nuts, Kevin. Anyways, uh, sleep sleeping pills and dementia. What's up with the study? Yeah, this was a little bit tri tricky, and I and I have to be honest on this one. I got excited about the story because I read a news story on it, and I thought, you know, this is a a, a study with a million holes and a great one to use in my class. Yeah, when I went to get the actual paper, I couldn't download it, so it's in one of these obscure journals that even. You know, my university doesn't have access to, which says a lot because we get everything. I can get the, the Southeast Asian Journal of Tilth Biology. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, but, but this is a, a classic example of confusing absolute risk with relative risk and doing so to grab headlines. And I think the media kind of grabbed onto this because of it. And this was written by, um, by Hank Campbell for Science 2.0. And at least the criticism of it, not the original article. The original article uh, did a, a, a survey. And what they looked at were senior citizens in all different um, levels of age and body composition, race, whatever, uh, gender. And they compared frequency of sleeping pill use against the development of dementia. And they did a lot of corrections and, and looked for different ways to compare this. But their bottom line was, was that um, if you are white and a power user of sleeping meds, you're more likely to develop um, dementia than if you're black. Or if you're black and you're um, wealthy, how you are um, also alleviate, or you also um, have less likelihood of dementia. And the problem is with this kind of study is the the plethora of compounding variables. The number one being that um, if you are in the black community, and I always say black rather than African-American because not every person of African origin, of African descent, is in the United States. Right? You have African Canadians and African South Americans of African descent. And they um, uh, tend to get Alzheimer's, which is the leading cause of dementia, dementia, at a higher rate than whites. So they're already predisposed. And there's all kinds of other confounding variables that you look at in, in this that are just crazy. But they say sleeping pills as a general category, not that there's 10 different kinds of sleeping medications. And some of them have actually been shown to have protective effects in past uh, publications. So if there really was a relationship between the chemistry of the pill itself and dementia, 
that would stick out like a sore thumb, but only if you looked at discrete medications, not at the broad set of sleeping pills. So what at best would say that if you're having trouble sleeping, maybe it could be a, uh, a, an association with the onset of dementia. But even those data were really, really soft in this study. Now, did they actually break it down by the medication that people were taking? Because, and I, to give credit, Yahoo News of all of all outlets ran a pretty good story about this, and so did Medical News Today. They were pretty good about uh, documenting the limitations of the paper, which is rare. Most most outlets either can't do that or won't. Do that. But in this Yahoo story, they point out that the range of drugs included antihistamines. Um, Supplements like uh, melatonin, antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines. <laughs> so these are like these are different classes of drugs. Some of them are very very powerful. Some of them don't do very much except make you drowsy and alleviate your itchy runny nose. Um, so so in other words, you know, these drugs are taken in different doses. They have different mechanisms. Um, so it seems I don't know if they did this in the paper because as you said, it was hard to get a hold of, but. I, like to just say sleeping medicine as a category might contribute to dementia. It seems a little broad, you know, almost to the point of being useless. What do you think about that? Yeah. So, so it was a very weak hypothesis. The hypothesis lent itself to misinterpretation. Like you mentioned, melatonin and benzodiazepines in the same category. Um, diphenhydramine, which is, is used for allergy relief, but causes drowsiness. All these things have remarkably different uh, mechanisms of action, if they even work at all. And uh, people tend to misuse melatonin. Um, and so all of these things have really big ranges and no common mechanism of action. And so that kind of, if, if you're going to do a study on this and you're going to look at specific drugs to treat an indication like sleeplessness, now maybe we could start to look for realistic associations. But all this is saying is, is that people who have trouble sleeping or staying asleep are people who tend to develop dementia. And that wasn't even clear by the statistics. So in, black, in, in white populations, more than black populations, and even that wasn't clearly delineated. So it, it's, it's a study with lots of different holes in it. I suppose if I went back and looked at the journal, it probably is an excessively low-impact journal, but still garnered a certain amount of traction in the news media. And so as I've, and probably because it came out of UC, UCSF and other uh, California agencies that are really good at tweaking the uh, press releases and getting some traction in the major media. Yeah. There were so many other things. Uh, Hank pointed out, for example, that there's probably people in the study who have dementia, but they're, it's early onset. So they haven't been diagnosed with it. Um, so they might be taking the sleeping meds to alleviate some of the symptoms, but they're not being classified as having dementia. So, right, this is just a classic example of um, some variable that you haven't properly controlled for. Um, I always find it amusing, too, that when you're looking at populations who you suspect of having, you know, diseases that can cause memory loss, <laughs> that you're like, hey, how many how many of this drug are you taking each week? Is it a lot? Is it a little bit? <laughs> you know? So, so I mean, that's just... An, that's just in passing, you know, they actually, and I did look this up, they had people come to the clinic with, um, you know, the prescription or whatever of the medicine they were taking. So they did verify that people were taking the drug, but you're asking that, I think they asked them over the length of the of the the 15 year study or whatever it was, like four times, like, how often do you take this? Is it like 
twice a month or five times a month. So you don't even know the doses that they're taking and you're asking people and everybody lies in self-report studies. This is just a fact that's been documented. Even if your memory works well, you lie about the stuff you take because you don't want to tell the truth. <laughs> but if you have people who you think might not be all together, no disrespect, this is not a, a reliable source of data to do any kind of a study. So I always thought that was funny. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's, I think that's spot on. Uh, yeah, asking somebody with cognitive decline and, and poor recall <laughs> to recall <laughs> is kind of a cyclical problem. Um, and, and so definitely, you, you've nailed it. And But this is the, the other big part of this is when you talk about dementia, dementia is not a one dementia and all thing. It's something that can be uh, brought on in many different flavors with many different manifestations. And uh, early, like you mentioned, early onset is why it's such a slippery thing to study. It's really, really, most of the time that they've studied this or done drug evaluations or surveys or whatever, it's in people that have already made a progression through very substantial cognitive decline and memory problems. And so you don't have a, uh, a, 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 you don't have a good population to work with. And that's why Alzheimer's medicines and things like that are so hard to come by and why they're so slow to develop is because they're looking at a heterogeneous population that's already impaired. So this is no different. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, I, I'm being very critical here, but these are hard studies to conduct, you know, and, and as you're sort of alluding to, it takes years for people to develop this condition and it usually happens late in life. So in order to do the uh, proper study where you're monitoring people and not asking them what drugs they're taking, but truly following their progression, it takes decades and of course, people are going to die before the study ends, and so you have to recruit more people, and you know, so it's it, it's hard to to investigate these things. There's no doubt about it, but it just seems to me like the study is uh, leaves a lot to be desired, <laughs> to put it nicely. I'm waving at my wife through the window. <laughs> no, but you're exactly right. Yeah, there, yeah. there's so many limitations we have to look at through the uh, through these through these studies, and, and it's important because there's a lot of people who read this in the news who may now say i'm not taking sleeping medicine anymore you know especially someone who has had someone in the family who's experienced the, the cognitive decline associated with dementia and it's really hard on a family it really is and uh in any kind of uh poorly interpreted poor power study may significantly affect their decisions and the decisions of their family so this is a this is important that we point that out so yeah good stuff. I yeah, just a final thought. It, it, we're talking about like a little over 600 people total who developed dementia in the study. So it's a really small population, and you need to be aware of that. This is not a, a terribly large study. So anyways, we can call it a day. That's going to do it for 206. Thank you as always, Kevin. It's a pleasure. I hope you have a, uh, a, a sort of restful weekend. I know you're always like, you know, building houses and stuff, so... I hope you get some amount of rest. <laughs> yeah, well, we should mention we, we usually record on a Friday, right? So that's why you're wishing me a happy weekend. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, it's going to be busy. We, we got a tile job to finish. So I'm out here right now looking at my tile saw that's covered in a tarp so it doesn't get wet. And uh, we're going to go ahead and hammer out uh, finishing remodeling a bathroom this weekend and process some ducks. <laughs> it's nothing like processing ducks on a Saturday. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. It's it, it, 
never a dull moment. And, but, yeah. But that's that's uh, that's what we do. So we science all week and farm stuff all weekend. Good times. There you go. All right. Well, thank you as always to everybody for joining us. We'll be back next week for 207. You can follow us on social media at Kevin Fulta on Twitter at ACSH org for my writing and uh, follow genetic literacy. They are genetic literacy project. Excuse me. They put this whole thing on for us. They're just at genetic literacy, all kinds of awesome topics as you see here when we come and talk about the stories. So with that, we will see you next time.